have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning we will be moving into the body of the letter. We've spent two weeks looking at the introduction, Paul's introduction, the first nine verses. And so this morning we're going to be moving into the body of the letter. And right off the bat, Paul will begin dealing with the primary problem within the Corinthian church. The big problem is that there are people there with divisive attitudes. Divisive attitudes. And so we're going to read the opening once again so that we can see the contrast when he begins to address this issue beginning in verse 10. Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and our brother Sosthenes to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. By Him we were made rich in everything, in all speaking and in all knowledge, as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also confirm to you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By Him you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that was the first nine verses there. And so we're going to begin our passage that we're going to be studying this morning is verses 10 through 17. And just in case you're worried that we're going to be spending 16 years in 1 Corinthians, I just want to say that some of these issues in this book will fall down in big pieces. So we will move through the book a little faster at other times. But this was the opening and so in verse 9, God is faithful. Why is all of this happening? Well, because God is faithful. Not because we are, but because He is. And that we have been called into fellowship with His Son. Partnership with Him. Some of your verse translations are going to have the first word in chapter 10 is, but. So this is the change. Verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all say the same thing that there be no divisions among you, and that you, be nine, that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that, you, that there are quarrels among you. What I'm saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Were you baptized into Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you've been baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with clever words, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Nearly every problem that Paul is going to address in this letter uh, 
in one way or another falls underneath this larger umbrella of divisive attitudes. Divisive attitudes. Almost everything he's going to address plugs into that, falls underneath that umbrella. But it is help for us, helpful for us to remember that at the heart of all sin is pride. And pride manifests itself through selfish behavior. All of us are selfish. We all know that. And at the heart of us being selfish is pride. Wanting our way. Wanting to just worry about ourselves. At the expense of others. What's more important to us is more important than anything anybody else wants or needs. We are naturally selfish. It's part of our sin nature. And at the heart of that is pride. Now, there's a fine line between just taking care of ourselves and being selfish. You know, when you tr start to touch something that's hot, your fingers will, will pull back immediately because uh, that, that's a normal part of uh, self-preservation. It's normal for us to, to want to meet our needs and to take care of ourselves and to look out for our best interests. It's not wrong. And when we do this, it's not just physically, like not touching something that's hot. It's, it's, uh, it involves all aspects of our life, socially, uh, economically, physically, psychologically, emotionally. It's natural for us to want to take care of ourselves. So there's a, a self-preservation mode we have as just human beings that's natural and normal and not necessarily bad. It's when we cross that line and we begin to be selfish. Well, how can you tell? How can you tell if you're being selfish? Well, we have the Bible. And we have our conscience. And we have... Uh, wise counsel. That's one of the benefits of being accountable to a local church. But we have to remember that our sin nature, you know, our, our sin nature guards our selfish behavior. It doesn't want to stop that. It wants to continue it and perpetuate it. And so our sin nature seeks to excuse the things that we're doing that's not right. It's, it it's, wants to downplay it and mitigate it. And so we can find ourselves doing something that's wrong, but because our sin nature wants to continue doing it, we find ways of justifying it, mitigating it, excusing it. And so that line gets very blurry sometimes between looking out, looking out for yourself and when you're really being selfish. And I'm not sure I can divide that line for you I don't know that I can divide that line for myself. But some things that are in place for us to help us with that is the Bible itself, our conscience, and wise counsel. In other words, do you have anybody who has your best interest in mind that talks to you throughout your life, your daily life? 
They're not tearing you down. So as we look at this passage about this divisive attitudes, as we look at this, we want to, re- we want to be reminded that there is a difference between operating or being guided by pride or operating and being guided by humility. There's two different driving forces there in how we behave, think, see things. And so obviously, as a church, as Christians, we want to be operating out of humility. And so we're going to look at these verses together, and then we'll make some closing observations. Now there in the very beginning, in verse 10, it says, Now I urge you, brothers, and some of your Bibles will say, Appeal. I'm appealing to you. Uh, Now I urge you, brothers. He's calling them brothers, so we're talking about Christians. He says, Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, that you all be united with the same mind, with the same understanding, and having the same convictions. This is standing in sharp contrast with what's in verse 9 where he's talking about us being called into fellowship with Jesus. You know, Jesus is very involved in our lives. He is, he's partnering with us. The Holy Spirit is our comforter that comes alongside us and walks with us and guides us and illuminates and protects and convicts and teaches. And so there's this partnership that we enter into with God, but it's a two-way street. And so we're supposed to remain in fellowship with Him. And we can't be in fellowship with him if we're not in fellowship with each other. And so what he's talking about is in stark contrast to that. He's talking about, I'm hearing that there are divisions among you. This is a problem. And we see that he's urging them or he is appealing to them. And so things haven't gotten too far. The church hasn't split yet. There's been no blood spilt yet. And so there's still time to turn things around. You know, uh, we can see that Paul is expecting them to all read this letter together. So they're still all together under the same roof, so to speak. And they are participating in the Lord's Supper together. So things haven't gone downhill too far. There's still time for them to turn this around. And so he's asking them to be of the same mind. And so this is something we talked about in the renewal service. It's talking about... Uh, renewing uh, the situation, something that has uh, has been interrupted that needs to resume. We talked about what it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and so you are wanting to go back to that place you were at initially, to have your mind renewed. And so here we're talking about you guys got along at one point, we need to go back to that. Something's happened, but Unity is very important. Before I say anything else, remember, unity is not at all cost. It doesn't mean to to compromise doctrine or to, you know, these kind of things. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about living in harmony with each other. There's something that needs to resume that has been interrupted. And he says, for it has been reported to me about you, my brothers. And he keeps saying brothers because he wants to remind them that they're brothers in Christ by members of Chloe's household, that there is divisions among you, that there is rivalry among you. And I think we can all appreciate that Chloe's name has been attached to this charge. You know, this isn't gossip. 
and someone has stood behind their words. Where, where's this coming from? Who, who said that? What's this all about? Well, I don't know. Some people are saying some things. Well, who? Well, I don't know. Well, you know. It's, uh... So I think we can all appreciate Chloe stamped her name on it. Now, Chloe, we don't know who this is. We don't know if she lived in Ephesus, where Paul was writing from, and she traveled to Corinth, or members from her household traveled to Corinth, and they brought back this alarming news to Paul. Or if it was vice versa, Chloe lived in Corinth and she sent the alarming news to Ephesus, to Paul. But she is the one who has informed Paul of what's going on. And she did not do this to cause trouble, to make Paul think that she's the greatest and they're the worst. She's concerned about the unity of the church, just like all of us should be. So he gets very specific. He says, what I'm saying is, is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, that's Peter, or I'm with Christ. So there in verse 12 and, and the verses that follow, there's, there's no indication that Paul or any of these other teachers have done anything wrong. The wrong is that people are aligning themselves or elevating themselves with certain teachers. The idea is that I'm with Peter, so I'm right and you guys are wrong. Or we're better because of these reasons. This is superior to what you guys are doing. You guys should be what, doing what we're doing. Well, I'm not doing what you're doing because I'm with Apollos. And so there's this divisive attitude. You know, if, if, the, if the pastor of a church leaves for a good reason or a bad reason, the pastor leaves. Or if the pastor dies, what will you do? If there's ever a time that a church needs you more, it's then. But for some reason, that seems to be when everybody starts hitting the door. You know, why are you here? Why are you really here? Are you here for your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife or your grandma or your mom? Why are you here? You know, we've all seen what happens when mom or grandma or great-grandma dies. We've all seen what happens here. It's illustrated vividly on Mother's Day. We've seen this, haven't we? Why are you here? I want to challenge you to be committed to this church because this is where God is discipling you. He has brought you here for a reason. Uh, when I look back on, on the time I've been here, my family's been here, uh, I'm, just, I'm just thankful. Uh, I'm thankful well beyond the fact that I've gotten to know all of you and, and love you so much. And we're a family now. I, I didn't have you as a family. Now I do. And so I'm extremely grateful, thankful for that. But even more is just that I can see the things that God has been doing in my life and in my family's life. And, and I'm growing, you know. And so that's why I'm here. 
And so before you or me, either one of us uh, ever starts to think about walking out this door and going somewhere else, and this isn't to trap you here, <laughs> believe me, I'm not saying it like that, but I'm just, but what I am saying is that before you just go to greener pastures, make sure that God is the one sending you to greener pastures. We do not come to church because we are in somebody's, on somebody's team. We're here, you know, that's one thing I, I wasn't going to say this, but I always appreciate about you, Dawn, is that, you know, you never say how great of a pastor I am and what a great job I do. And, you know, you just never say that. You know, every time Dawn thanks God about this church, he thanks, the God, he thanks God for bringing his family here because he sees what God has been doing in his life and in his family's life. And that's why we're here. We're here because this is where God is discipling us. He's teaching us and training us and growing us here. And for the time being, God may move you somewhere else and that may be what happens. But don't do it just because hard times come or because you have your, your team mascots gone or something. You know. Recognize that you're here because God is teaching you something and training you and growing you. This is where you are being discipled by God. So don't run away from that. It's a mistake. Let God tell you when it's time to do something different. Now, we look at these four men, one of them is Jesus, uh, that these different people are aligning with, and we all know who Paul is. He, he is a Jew. He's an, a, a, an apostle. He is a minister to the Gentiles. But even in uh, 2 Corinthians, in his second letter, he reveals what people are saying about him behind his back. Um, in, chap in chapter 10, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, this is what some people were saying about Paul. It doesn't mean it's true, but this is the way they're characterizing him. It says, for it is said, Paul, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking is despicable. You know, a guy did fall asleep of a window listening to Paul, you know. So maybe people didn't like Paul because he just wasn't, you know, hitting it out of the ballpark when he talked. The content was great, but I can't stay awake because I, I didn't get enough sleep last night and I didn't drink my coffee and this guy's killing me. Who knows? But for sure, some people were with Paul because he founded the church. Paul was the reason there was a church in Corinth. God had used Paul to found the church. Apollos, he is also a very devout Jew, but he is from another part of the world. He's from North Africa. Apollos is from Alexandria, a big, a big Jewish city, big, you know, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, Jewish city in Egypt on the northern coast of Africa. This is where Apollos is from. And uh, we also know from Acts chapter 18 that he is uh, eloquent, a master of the scriptures, very gifted teacher. And so no wonder people thought that he was the best. He was eloquent and, and powerful with the scriptures is what it tells us. Mighty in spirit. 
And so he was a very dynamic man, a very dynamic speaker, and bright. And then Peter, we have absolutely no record that Peter ever set foot in Corinth. We don't know that he did, but we don't know that he didn't either. Uh, there's a verse uh, in chapter 9, verse 5 in chapter 9, that talks about how Peter is travels with his wife. And so they may know this because Peter was in Corinth at some point, but we don't know that. People may have aligned with him because he was a Jew and his ministry was to the Jewish people. They might have aligned with him, but Paul was a Jew, Paulus was a Jew, Jesus is a Jew, you know, so that's a reason, but maybe, you know, we don't know, but, but Peter was one of the original disciples. He was the leader of the apostles. It was Peter who preached on the day of Pentecost. But we don't know. And then, of course, Jesus. Uh, you know, there's always people who say, we listen to no man. You know, we only follow Jesus. Well, Paul responds to this by saying, is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? So is Christ divided? The point is this, that while they are divided, Jesus is not. He's always the same. He's one of those people that no matter where you run into him, he's, it's always him. And Jesus is not divided. He's one. And so the, the body of Christ is not supposed to be divided either. We'll see this later in this letter. It's an issue. That the body of Christ is not supposed to be divided. And he says, was it Paul who was crucified for you? You know, you have to remember that crucifixions were common. And the Romans were in, it was intentionally gruesome. On purpose, it was torture. On purpose. And they hung you up there until you died. And then they left you up there so that your body was completely devastated by nature. And they would do this usually on major roads that would be entering into the city. You would be entering the town with all of these people hung on crosses. And it was supposed to be a dire warning to submit to the absolute authority of the Roman Empire. So Paul's saying, you need to remember who it was that died on a cross for you. It wasn't Apollos, it wasn't Paul, it wasn't Peter, it was Jesus. That should bring unity. You know, I've taught about different I, I, times in our country where we've been united, 9-11 and you know, different things. At the beginning of the coronavirus, we were, believe it or not, we were actually united. We were all so scared, we didn't know what this virus was going to be like, and we were all in... Great, a great concern as this virus swept, swept around the, the globe, you know, and just for a, a moment we were united, you know. Uh, but not far from here, there are arenas that will be full of people screaming and cheering, uh, all of one mind, in all agreement, wanting their team to win, and happy when the team is, does well, uh, sad when the team does not do well. And it's an arena full of very different people from all walks of life. Unity. And so the cross is being brought up here to bring unity, for them to remember who it is that 
they have given their lives to, who it is that they've put their faith in. And then he brings up baptism, you know, or were you baptized in Paul's name? You know, there was, there was nobody getting baptized under, under any other name. Nobody was getting baptized in Paul's name. You know, Jesus isn't divided. He's the same all the time. He was crucified for us, and we are baptized in his name. And so then in verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And Gaius is mentioned in Romans, and Crispus was the leader of the synagogue that got saved. So I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Well, I did in fact baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize. Not with clever speech, clever words that would empty the effect of the cross of Christ. Now, Paul's point here about baptism is only concerned with divisions. That's all he's talking about, is divisions. You know, maybe it doesn't even say this, but since he's bringing up baptism, it just only goes to show that there was somebody who was tooting their horn because they got baptized by a specific person. Now, we don't know if Peter was ever there, so there's no reason to believe Peter baptized anybody there. Jesus was obviously not in Corinth baptizing people. So Paul's point is that this is just, I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody, just to, to minimize the possibilities of somebody aligning with me just because I baptized him. So he's, he's just expressing relief that he had a minimal involvement in bapti baptizing people. One less reason for people to align themselves with him. And just, just think about that just for a minute. And I, I, I've given this quite a bit of thought myself is that, you know, we're talking about people aligning with these four different groups. And then Paul says, well, I'm, so I thank God that I didn't baptize anybody except just a few people. Well, baptism, what's that got to do with anything? Because Jesus wasn't baptizing anybody. Peter probably never was even there. Or if he was, it was minimal. There's no real record of it. Why would anybody be aligning with somebody just because they got baptized? It just only goes to show that somebody there was shooting their mouth off about their favorite guy because he baptized them. And I remember who baptized me, and I have special affection for that person. Maybe you do too, the person who baptized you. And so I understand that. But I wasn't baptized in my dad's name, even though he baptized me. So this is Paul's point. That's why he's bringing it up. It's just one thing that people are hanging their hats on that's causing trouble. And for no good reason at all, you just say, I'm glad I'm baptizing by very many people so that you guys can't hang your hat on me for that reason. But at the same time he's doing that, at the same Paul, time Paul is saying this, He's making a very remarkable statement because there are people who believe that you are actually saved when you're baptized. That that's when it actually happens. That's when 
You actually repent. That's when you have the remission of sins. That's when you are adopted. You receive your inheritance. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is when you're justified and you're reconciled with God. All of those events occur during water baptism. Some people believe that. Paul is distinguishing between the gospel and baptism. If you got saved when you got baptized, why on earth would Paul ever say, I thank God that I didn't baptize very many of you? As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, we find out that Paul says there are many tutors. You will have many teachers, but you'll only have one father. I'm the one who led you to Christ. John would call his folks that he'd led to Christ his little children. Paul says he's their father in the gospel. So even though he didn't baptize them, he was their father. So there's a very strong distinction. You know, Paul says... God did not send me to baptize. He, said, he called me here to evangelize. He called me here to present the gospel because it's the gospel that saves. It's when we put our faith in Christ. This is when we are saved. And so you can see, even though this was not Paul's major point in what he's saying here, we can see a net, a net result of what's occurring. He is distinguishing between baptism, which is a picture of what really happens. It's a picture. Now, I'm saying this, but I do, want, do not want to minimize the importance of baptism. In the first century, baptism was so closely associated with salvation. To, to put your faith in Christ and then not get baptized was unheard of. It's certainly not unheard of now. But at the time, it was not. And it was not even at great cost. Because when you got baptized, or when you put your faith in Christ and you were baptized in the first century, it cost you something. You were identifying yourself with the Christians and with Jesus. And all that meant, all the luggage, all of the danger, all of the persecution, you were taking it all on. Baptism is a way of showing the church, that you also, you're, you're like, hey guys, I'm, I'm like you. I have accepted Christ as my Savior too. And I'm going to stand with you. And it's a public profession of your faith. That's believer's baptism. Well, these are the passages that we've been studying here about the division in this, the divisive attitudes in this church. And so now, uh, in closing, uh, there's some, some observations. How do we handle divisive attitudes? And remember that a divisive attitude does not have to be two different warring groups in a church. You know, there's the Hatfields and McCoys. It, it can just be two people. It can be one person who has a divisive attitude. Just one person who's difficult. How do we handle that? How do we handle it when we have disagreements? How do we handle it when you, whether the child and the parent are at odds, or husband and wife are at odds, or just two people in a Sunday school class. How do we handle it? And so uh, there's five reasons, five steps. And uh, the first one is that we need to determine right off the bat 
whether or not the issue at hand is a fundamental non-negotiable of the Christian faith? Is it, an, is it an essential of our Christian faith? Like the authority of Scripture or salvation by grace through faith or the second coming of Christ. These are non-negotiables. So we have to decide that first. So if the, if the division in the church, if someone has a divisive attitude and they are introducing something that is contrary to one of these essentials of our faith, we have to stand up to that. We have to. We can't be weak and scared and timid and get bulldozed over. We have to stand up to it. But when we do that, our heart has to be in the right place. So we have to have a heart that is being expressed by the way we are behaving or responding that says that we want to come alongside you and show you the better way, to show you why we believe this, to show you that this is the truth. You know, we speak the truth in love. And so our motivation, even in the worst situations where someone is kind of trying to change doctrine, serious doctrinal issues, non-negotiable doctrinal issues, someone is trying to do that, even still, our objective should be restoration rather than assassination. Beating them up, throwing them out the door, opening the door with their head. You know, that's not our attitude, even in the worst situation where it is a non-negotiable issue. So right off the bat, we have to decide if it's non-negotiable or if it's a secondary issue. Secondary issues are things like power. Somebody wants power. Maybe you've had the power and now it's being threatened. You want to be in charge. You want to call the shots. You don't like anybody else calling the shots. And you may not even realize that you don't want to give that up until it's threatened. Oh, wow, all of a sudden I'm not in charge anymore. My power. You know, um, before I came to this church, there was a, a, another church that asked me to come and work there uh, with their kids. And I was thinking how old I am and... Just not really, you know. I'm not the guy that gets that puts lots of pies in the face, and I thought I'd be the lose, I'd be the worst children's director in the, in the history of the world, and so that was one of the biggest objective reasons, you know. But I think God wanted me to come here, you know. But um, I was warned about that church that there was a family that controlled everything. Their fingers was in everything. They were on every committee, and from the top down, it was this family controlled the church said don't go there because of that family and that really had nothing to do with my decision but it's a it's a picture of how people um, are responsible in a church they guide the church and power other things that can cause conflicts is uh, things like uh, teaching styles or worship styles church tradition. There can be factions of legalism versus license. Freedom in Christ versus this is the way we've always done things. These are some of the things. 
prejudice. Prejudice has to do with wanting people to be around you that are just like you. You know, it doesn't have to be black and white and all of that business. Prejudice just means you only want to be around people that are like you. Do you value other people? Aren't you glad everyone isn't like you? Social standing, money, who makes the money, who doesn't make the money, all of these kind of things. I, I remember uh, here in our church, and I've heard other pastors that I've listened to on the radio or, or on YouTube and stuff, just as it's like every church in the, in the country, the pastors have had to deal with people who says, uh, masks. You're going to make everybody wear masks? Well, I'm out. Or if you say, okay, well, no masks. It says, no masks? Well, I'm out. You know, just you can't win. And these divisive things over secondary issues. And so the basic idea here is that in a church, there needs to be room for diverse opinions on secondary issues. And if we embrace that fact, it can cause, it can alleviate a lot of our tensions. Not that we have tensions here, but it can alleviate tensions when you realize that it's okay if we don't all agree about everything, as long as it's not something that's non-negotiable. The second thing here is that uh, we need to realize that pride is present in one or both sides. For there to be a division, there's, there's got to be some pride involved. Somebody's being proud. It might be both of you. So we should be asking ourselves the question, is it me? Am I being proud? Am I being selfish? Do I want my preferences to rule over your preferences? Am I so convinced that the way I want it is right that I'm willing to destroy the peace and unity of the church? So you have to ask yourself, am I the one who is exhibiting and being driven and guided by pride? Is it me? And this brings up the third point, and that is that, that neither side thinks it's them. Neither one. If you've got your position, you're sure that you're right. You believe that you're right. You feel very strongly about it. So the other party or person has to be wrong because you're right. Well, guess what this person's thinking? I'm right. Obviously, this person's wrong. So when you get into a divisive situation or a divisive attitude, you have to automatically realize, hey, is this, is this a primary deal here or is this a secondary issue? It's okay for us to not see eye to eye on this. We can work something out. I want to make sure that I'm not approaching this problem with pride. I'm approaching this issue with humility. And I need to recognize that we both think we're right. And so we can argue all day long, we can get all red-faced if we want, but it's not ever going to fix anything because we both are, conf are confident that we're right. That's important to know. So how do you know if you're being divisive? How do you know if it's you? How do you know if you're being guided by pride or if you're being guided by humility? i got a couple of suggestions. The first one is you need to ask yourself, and of course I'm always saying you, but I'm talking about myself as well, but are you listening? 
Are you listening to what the other person is saying? Do you, do you value their opinion? Or, or you have this dismissiveness about it. You're, you know, you're hearing what they're saying, but you're dismissing it because it's wrong. You know? are, you, are you honestly trying to understand and appreciate their point of view? So if the answer is no, then guess what? You are operating out of pride. It does not mean that you're wrong. It just means that the way you're approaching the problem is out of pride instead of humility. So if you're not listening, if you're not allowing other people to interject their opinions, or you're dismissing what they've got to say, you're honestly not trying to weigh it, then you are operating out of pride. We are operating out of pride. And the second little suggestion I have for, for telling whether or not we're the one that's being divisive He said, we need to evaluate our position, or evaluate the other person's position without evaluating their motive. This is really important because uh, if, if you, first of all, it's kind of hard for us to tell, for me to say, Kaylin, I know what's motivating you to say that. I know why she wants to do this, you know. And Lana, boy, I know exactly why you want to do that. And what happens is, is we... We're, we get so focused emotionally on other people's <clears throat> motives that we're not actually evaluating what's being suggested. But if we remove the motive, because another person's motive can be 100% wrong, they can be a, a completely wrong, but what they are suggesting is right. And we'll miss it because we're evaluating the motive. If I'm right here and this person's right here and, and uh, they're suggesting something to me that we should do, we should make the change. But I won't accept it. I can't hear it because I know that this person's motive is wrong. You scumbag. Your motive is terrible. You are stinking to high heaven. So I'm, I'm ignoring, I'm rejecting your su suggestion. And what am I doing? I'm operating out of pride. And the fourth thing is that we need to have compassion for each other. And we have to remember that whoever we were before we became a Christian, some of that is brought into the local church environment. You know, uh, when you first accept Christ as your Savior, sometimes God sets a lot of things in order. And the, the issues that you were, the addictions or the, the attitudes or your language or stuff, sometimes those things are just like magically cleared up. I mean, I can think of my life, there were some things that were just like taken away. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, I don't even want to do that anymore. How, how is that possible? I don't even want to do that anymore. I can't even believe this. My heart's completely changed. But He didn't change everything. That's that process of sanctification, that ongoing process of sanctification. That's that, that being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So each one of us is going through a process of getting rid of the bad stuff. And so when we come together as a church, we bring a lot of that together. And it, it has everything to do a lot of times with our conflicts. You know, some people are, are passive and they are introverts. And they are non-confrontational. And then you got this other person or party who is 
an extrovert and very assertive and, and makes a lot of noise. And uh, because this person isn't saying anything, they're not disagreeing, they're not standing up to you, this person can become empowered and vindicated and authenticating everything he's got to say. You know, like this. And then this person, sometimes it plays out different. They decide, well, I can't, I'm not going to argue. I can't defeat this person because he knows the Bible more than I do or he's louder and more bombastic. But I can, I can work against him under the radar. And I can talk to people. And I can stir it up. Some people come into the church prejudice, like I said. They only want to be around people like them. There are people who are bullies, rude, stubborn. And so when we come into contact with each other and there's a divisive situation, you know, we want to make sure we understand whether this is something that's really important or not. This is a hill to die on. Is this a non-negotiable or not? And if it's, if it's not, then we want to be operating out of humility. And we want to check ourselves to make sure that's where we're at. And to love the other person. So if you can recognize where this person has came from, their background, the experiences they've had in life, their personality, and these things are all coming into play into this contact with this person. It could be your wife we're talking about. It could be your best friend. It could be your boss at work. But here in the Bible, we're talking about in the church environment. It's very important to have compassion for each other. And to recognize that we're, we're not all done cooking. We're all, God's still working in all of our lives. And finally, it's not so much who is right as it is what is right. God doesn't want us to argue. He doesn't want us to disagree and, and to, to split, to separate. You know, God wants us to reconcile and to move forward together. I remember when I first got married, Julie and I would argue about something, and mostly it was me. I was mad at her about something. It's usually me. And I would just, because I was so right, you know, I was always so right, every time. And I just started thinking, you know, do you want to be right or do you want to be married? You want to, you want to not live with her anymore because of that? Is that really that important? How silly. And so this is the attitude we're supposed to have as Christians and to protect the unity of our church. And I think we do a really good job of that. I've bragged on us a hundred times. You and I, everybody here knows that we get along. Uh, this is the, the, the greatest gift my wife and I have really ever had is to, to be a part of this church. We've never been in a church like this where everybody truly loves each other. We've just never had that experience. So we're doing really good. But this message is in 1 Corinthians. It's a problem in this church, and so we want to address it in our passage. In closing, I just want to remind us that Jesus prayed about this. Uh, it's in John chapter 17, verse 21. He said, May they all be one. This is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. You see, our unity 
You know, they will know us by our love. And so the unity of the church is a testimony to the, to the validity of the gospel, to the reality that Jesus was sent here from the Father. So it's a very sobering reason for us to preserve and protect the unity of our body. Let's pray.